Hello everyone. Welcome to session three of our study of Colossians. As you remember from last time, our focus was on the importance of growing in knowledge and wisdom of God. Remember from our lesson last time that we learned that when we grow in godly wisdom, that we're going to be able to do things. Growing in godly wisdom is going to enable us to do good works and bear fruit for the Lord. Growing deeper in our relationship with God, we learned, is going to give us endurance to keep moving forward. It's going to give us patience with others and with ourselves, and it's going to give us a life filled with joy. Today, we're going to be discussing verses 15 through 23 in Colossians chapter 1. And today, our focus is going to be on the preeminence of Christ, the supremacy of Jesus. So in verses 15 through 20, we're going to see the ways in which Jesus is supreme over all things. And then in verses 21 through 23, we're going to see how his preeminence pertains to you and me. So let's dig in. So I've been thinking a lot about resumes this week. You see, my daughter is about to graduate from college, so she's turning her focus on finding a job. So she's in the process of building up her resume. And my husband's been helping a young friend of his enhance his resume. So I've been thinking about resumes and the purpose. What is the purpose of a resume? I mean, what is a resume supposed to do for a person? When companies look at resumes, what exactly are they looking for? Well, a resume is a synopsis of a person's qualifications and attributes. It's a list of a person's accomplishments. When a company or an employer has an open position, they want the right person to fill that position. And only the person with the best qualifications and the best attributes are going to be the right fit for that open position. Only the right person with the right qualifications is going to get the job. And you see, I believe that that's what's taking place in these verses. In this passage, I believe that God is giving us Jesus's resume. Now bear with me and I'll show you what I mean by that. You see, in every human heart, there is an open position. Every human heart has a need that must be filled. Every human, planet being, every human being on the planet has the same need, and that is the need for a Savior. Every human being needs redemption because sin has separated man from God. People have been separated from God because of their sin. Psalm 51.5 tells us clearly that man, man, mankind has been born into sin. Human beings can never be good enough to earn their salvation. And so relationship between God and human beings has been broken. So we need a savior. We need someone to bridge that gap between sinful man and a holy God. And only one person can fill that position, and that's Jesus. So in verses 15 through 23, we're going to see seven attributes that make Jesus uniquely qualified to fill the role of Savior. No one can do what he did, and no one can be who he is. So let's begin by reading verses 15, and we're going to be reading from um, the ESV version, and we're going to read from verses 15 through 23. And it says this, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So I believe the seven attributes that make Jesus uniquely qualified to fill the role of Savior are the fact that he's the image of God, he's the firstborn over creation, he's the creator of all things, he holds all things together, He's the head of the church, he's the firstborn from the dead, and he's the reconciler of all things. So let's take verse 15 first, where it says that he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that the Son is the exact representation or imprint of God's nature. John 14.9, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is God, we learn from this verse. Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Now, this is important because many people believe that Jesus is a great spiritual leader. Many people recognize Jesus as a historical, a significant historical figure. But if that's all we believe about Jesus, then we're missing the point. He is uniquely qualified to be the Savior because he is God. He alone has the power to save souls. This verse also tells us that he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, knowing the historical context is key here, because this word firstborn actually is significant. In the first century, the word firstborn signified rank. It signified status. The firstborn was sovereign. He held dominion. He held authority. And so the fact that Jesus is the firstborn over creation tells us that he is the head over creation, He is the authority of creation. He has dominion over creation. Jesus preceded creation, and he is sovereign over creation. But not only is he supreme over creation, but verse 16 tells us he is the creator of all things, everything we see and everything we don't. So who better to save us than the one who created us? He is creator. He is God. Therefore, he is worthy. He is worthy to be our Savior, and he is worthy of our worship. It makes no sense to serve and worship a created thing rather than the Creator. And and I think that's what we do sometimes. I think that we look to created things to capture our attention, to capture our time, to capture our focus. I think oftentimes created things are the objects of our worship. But no one is more worthy than Jesus Christ of our worship. Now, verse 17 goes on to tell us that he holds all things together. It tells us that Jesus holds the world together. Again, Paul is reiterating the supremacy of Christ in all things. But I have to admit 
that this passage of, stri- of scripture, I struggle a little bit. I struggle with this concept of Jesus holding all things together sometimes, because to be honest, it's difficult for me to see. It's difficult for me to see how Jesus is holding all things together right now. Because, I mean, let's face it, we're in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. Society has been locked down for a year. People have been separated from their jobs, from school, from church, from their friends. Thousands of people have lost their lives. So there's this disconnect in my mind between what I know to be true, that Jesus holds it all together, but yet what I'm seeing in the world. And so when that happens, when there's incongruence between what we see and what we believe, two possibilities are taking place, I believe. Either what we're believing is wrong or what we're seeing is wrong. So let's take a look at both. First of all, let's take a look at what we believe. Hebrews 10.16 10, tells us that I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, God tells us. In Romans 8.16, it says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the Holy Spirit affirms in our hearts and minds that what God's word says is true. We can know what God's word said is true, and we can know what we believe is true because the Holy Spirit tells us so in our hearts and our minds. He confirms the word of God. Secondly, we can know that what we believe is true because we've experienced God's working in our lives. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. For now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. So let's look at that portion that says we see in a mirror dimly. Think about looking in a mirror for a second. When we look in a mirror, we see our outward appearance, right? We see the outside of ourselves. But we know that even though we can only see the outside, that there's much more going on behind the scenes than what we can see. I mean, can we see our hearts beating? Can we see our lungs expanding and contracting with every breath? Of course not. So if we can't see it, how do we know that it's really happening? Well, we know our lungs are expanding and contracting because we're experiencing breath. We know that our hearts are beating because we're alive. Even though we can't see what's going on, we believe it because we're experiencing it. So we can know that God's word is true because the Holy Spirit tells us so. And we can know and believe that God's word is true because we've experienced God working in our lives. So if the problem isn't with what we believe, then it must be with what we see. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 4, 18 tells us that we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us that we walk by faith, not by sight. So we must understand that what we see is only a small part of what's going on. God and Jesus see it all. You and I can only see the past, in the present. But Jesus, he sees the past, the present, and the future. He sees it all. So when it looks like things are spinning out of control, whether in the world or even in your own personal life, take heart, be encouraged, because Jesus sees what you don't, and he is working in ways that you aren't even aware of.
always not doom and gloom. For instance, did you know that during this pandemic, community support groups have been springing up all over the world? Volunteers are shopping and picking up prescriptions for the elderly. In the UK, the government asked for 250,000 health and um, healthcare workers to come and volunteer their time. And a staggering 750,000 people answered the call. So all is not doom and gloom. So we must ask ourselves, what is it that guides our life? What are we living by? Are we living according to what we see? Or are we living according to what we know? And if we are believing God's word and we know it to be true, then we can trust it and we can live our lives according to what he said. So when he tells us that he's holding your world together and my world together, we can believe it. In verse 18, he goes on to tell us that the next quality that Jesus has that makes him qualified to be our savior is the fact that he's the head of the church. First Peter 2.6 says that Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. The gospel, the Christian message, is purely based on Jesus Christ. Christianity revolves around Jesus himself. The entire Christian belief system is based on Jesus. Without Jesus, there is no Christianity. He is the head of the church. And it also says that he is the beginning of all things, the firstborn from the dead. And so he was there at the beginning. He was there at the beginning of creation. He was there at the beginning of the church. He was there at your beginning and at my beginning. And he knew, he knew at the beginning that death would be our outcome. Jesus knew that we would choose our own pleasure before him. He knew every sin that human would, human beings would commit, and he still chose to come here. He still chose to live as a human being, and he still chose to live his life for ours and to sacrifice his life for ours. That's what firstborn from the dead means. It means that Jesus has conquered death. He has overcome death because he was resurrected. Now, we know in Scripture that there were other people that were also resurrected. There were other people in Scripture who, was also ra- who were also raised from the dead, particularly Lazarus. But it is Jesus' resurrection that guarantees new life for those who follow him. And so because he overcame death by being raised from the dead, there is no longer any sting for death for us. We don't need to fear death as Christians anymore because Jesus overcame it. So for the Christian, death is nothing more than a transition. It's a transition from this life into a life in the presence with Jesus. Death is nothing more than a transition from this life into paradise into a life where there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no injustice, that everything will be made right. That is what death means for the Christian. And so that is what we have to look forward to, a life with Jesus. Finally, in verses 21 and 22, the characteristic Paul points out about Jesus is the fact that he is the reconciler. He is the reconciler of all things. He reconciles to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. You see, before we were saved, 
we were enemies of Christ. Before we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we were alienated. We were separated from God. There was a gap between sinful man and a holy God. But because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, because of his resurrection, he has brought us into right relationship with God if we accept his free gift. Now, it's important here that Paul mentions that he, we have been reconciled to him through his flesh. Verse 21 says that he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So it's important. Paul mentions this idea of his body in the flesh, and it's important for us to know. It's important for us to know that Jesus was completely God, but he was also completely human. Because false teachers in that day were teaching that physical things were evil. And so because physical things were evil, that Christ couldn't have had a physical body, that he only appeared in physical form. But 1 John 4, 2 tells us clearly that this is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So in order for Jesus to redeem mankind, he must have been human, completely human. So what is what is the meaning for all, meaning of all of this for us? How does this pertain to us? All of these characteristics that make Jesus the only one to be Savior, that he is uniquely qualified, he's the only one to save mankind from their sins. So how does that pertain to you and me? Well, it tells us in verse 23 that because of Jesus' death, because of his resurrection, that you and I have can be presented. We can be presented before God holy and blameless and above reproach before God. You see, because of Jesus' sacrificial death, we can come to God with confidence that our sins will be forgiven. We can come to God with confidence that our sins will not be held against us if we accept his free gift of salvation. We can be counted as holy and blameless because of the price that Jesus paid. But we must know, and it tells us in verse 23, that if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, So there is a part that you and I have to play. We must continue to live lives of faithfulness to God. But I think this verse gives us an assurance. It gives us an assurance of our standing in Christ, that if we hold fast to our faith in Christ, we can have confidence that we will be counted holy. Warren Warren Wearsby says it this way, We're not saved by continuing in our faith, but we continue in our faith and thus prove we are saved. We can't make ourselves holy. We can't make ourselves blameless. Only Jesus can through his death and resurrection. And so finally, Paul sums up by saying that this gospel that we have all heard has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So here it seems that Paul is proclaiming the fact that he is confident in the power of the gospel. He's confident in the power of the gospel to reach everyone. You see, the gospel message began with the creation of mankind. The gospel message continued through the life of Noah, then Abraham, then the life of Moses. The gospel became flesh and dwelt among us through the life of Jesus, and it will continue to reach out and touch humanity until its return, until the return of Jesus. 
So we're going to end our study right there. And hopefully that through these verses, we have, have well established that Christ is preeminent. Hopefully we've established successfully that Christ alone is supreme. He is supreme over everything. And because of this preeminence, because he is supreme over everything, he is the only one who can save us. And because of that, he is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. So the challenge that I'd like to submit to us today is to answer this question. As you think about your life through the week, think about who or what you and I worship. Who do you worship? What do you worship? Who or what captures your time, your attention, and your focus more than anything else? Are we making our relationship with Jesus a priority in our lives? I mean, it's easy to see that Jesus is sovereign over the entire world, but is he sovereign over you and I? Is Jesus truly sovereign over my personal life? Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for coming and and meeting with me today and going through the study of Colossians. I hope that it has meant as much to you as it has to me. I look so forward to us meeting again next time. God bless you.